welcome back to Rethinking Politics, episode 37. Today we're going to be doing another of our Week in Review episodes where we take a look at some of the major events that have taken place in the last, you know, week or two or three and talk about the interesting developments and some of our takes on them. You know, there were too many things going on for us to be able to to cover all of them with an entire episode, so we decided to do another hodgepodge. Right. Some of them are not worth a full episode, but are worth a few minutes. And some of them are worth a full episode, but we're we're not up to the point where we can record three episodes in a week yet, so you do what you have to to survive. <laughs> True that. The first one we want to discuss is the George Floyd trial, as if George Floyd is on trial. It's, it's uh, Derek Chauvin, obviously, is the person on trial, the person who is being accused of murdering George George Floyd. There are actually three charges that are on the table. And I wanted to go through the charges really quick just to make sure that people have an idea of, of what he is being charged with. Now, there are several different kinds of murder charges. The highest one is off the table here. The classic, like, premeditated, I hate you. I'm first going to, first I'm going degree to murder. Right. What is on the table is second degree murder, which is an unintentional death while you're committing a felony. Often this comes into play when someone's doing something else. They're stealing from someone's house. They're burglarizing someone's house. And then the person walks in and there's an altercation and the person dies. In that case, this perpetrator would be accused of second-degree murder. They killed someone, somebody died, committing some kind of other felony. Now that felony can also be assault, right? You... you yeah, and in that attack in this someone, case, that's you're beating someone is. up. Yes, and in this case, that is exactly what they're accusing him. In of. other words, the the second degree murder charge in this case is that Derek Chauvin was trying to assault, well, was assaulting George Floyd, and that's all he wanted to do. But in the process, accidentally killed him, and so it qualifies as that second degree unintentional felony murder. Yeah, the death is unintentional. The harm is not necessarily just not to that degree. The next charge, in order we're going through them, we started with the most heinous charge against him, the most heinous crime he may have committed, and working our way down is third-degree murder, perpetrating eminently dangerous act, and evincing depraved mind. So you're doing something extremely dangerous that could result in the harm or death of someone else without regard for human life. You can see why this charge would be one that they would they would bring against him, that he's doing something that is clearly harming George Floyd, and he's not caring at all what, what happens to him, right? This, is, this might be the vibe you get from the video, that he uh, is not concerned at all for the guy that he's kneeling on, and he's doing something extremely dangerous. And the third possibility, the least of the charges, is second-degree manslaughter. This is where you've done something negligent. You're not, you're not acting dangerously per se, but you're, you're doing some kind of culpable negligence. You did something which you clearly shouldn't have, or you didn't do something which you clearly should that created an unreasonable risk that resulted in someone's death. This is a much lighter charge. You can This charge can come up in all kinds of circumstances. Yeah, manslaughter is a, is a large step down from murder, even from third-degree murder. To go from third-degree murder to manslaughter is a big is a big difference. This often comes up in things like work accidents. If there is somebody really, some serious negligence involved in a work accident, you might get this second degree manslaughter charge. Or if you're driving home and you're drunk or something like that and you hit someone, you can be charged with a, a type of manslaughter like this. So now in the trial, the prosecutor is going to try and convince the jury to pick the most severe of these crimes. And if they can't get the most severe, they'll, they'll get the next one down, and so on. And of course, the defense is going to try and get a not guilty verdict if possible, and if not that, then the, the least severe of these, of these sentences. And these sentences are mutually exclusive, in case that wasn't clear. He's not going to get convicted of two of these. Yeah, it's going <laughs> to be one of the three or, or none. Of course, you'll notice right off the bat that none of these require that the prosecution prove that Derek Chauvin was trying to kill George Floyd. None of these were intentional murder, and so does make it a little bit easier for the prosecution. What complicates it is the fact that as a police officer, he does get some protection, 
And really, it's the fact that when this happened, he was arresting George Floyd, which was his job. So, for example, the the second degree murder seems obvious, right? Of course, he's committing a felony when he's assaulting George Floyd. And so he should obviously get convicted of that one. Well, it's not so simple because police officers actually are allowed to assault people in certain circumstances without it being a crime, without it being a felony at all. And so in order for them to convict Derek Chauvin of that second degree murder, they have to convince the jury that when he was assaulting George Floyd, it was assault, it was a felony, and it wasn't simply what he had to do in order to arrest George Floyd and protect himself and his fellow officers. Right, which is a difficult case to make with the uh, resisting arrest sounds like too strong a word for what George Floyd was doing. But with the fact that he they tried to get him in the squad car and things, and he didn't want to go in the squad car, and so they were there was some pushback there which makes escalation almost inevitable, unfortunately, in police circumstances. Well, and, and yeah, and it does raise other questions, you know, raise questions of what what's the police training in this situation? What are they trained to do? What are their instructions given? What is the expected thing for them to do? And then what were their options? What were his choices? What could he have done differently? All of these things come into play. And as you look more and more into it, it definitely becomes messier and messier. For sure, almost everyone agrees that Derek Chauvin did something seriously, seriously wrong in what he did, and that can led to George Floyd's death. Unquestionably, that's what happened. That doesn't necessarily mean that he's guilty of second-degree murder. It doesn't mean he's not. Answering these little details, answering these small questions, actually have a huge play in what he's actually guilty of, which is why they're spending so much time having police officers from, from his police precinct testify in this trial about police procedure, about what he should have done and all of these things to gain more information into these requirements in order to shed some light on the situation. Yeah, it's it's an interesting question. You said it's clear that there's something that he's done something wrong. But where is the culpability for that? As you said, it's entirely possible that culpability ends up coming down on the police as an institution not on Derek Chauvin as an individual, in which case none of these charges would probably apply. That's the possibility of, if he is merely performing within the realm or scope of what is okay for an officer, maybe not what necessarily how he's supposed to per se, but within an acceptable scope, and if there are external factors related to things like the drugs he was on at the time, then you could see how that would create not necessarily, not necessarily be a compelling case that he did nothing wrong, but it could create plausible deniability. It yeah, could, could create, create a situation doubt. where there is exactly reasonable doubt is the term I'm looking for, not plausible deniability, wrong circumstances, <laughs> that where there is enough room for doubt that they don't convict him, even though it, even though he is guilty, maybe, or, perhaps, right? Or they convict him of manslaughter, which, like we said before, has a much, a much lighter sentence. And if that happens, if he if he is convicted of just manslaughter or he is or he is uh, acquitted, there's going to be a some serious blowback in the community because when you have an individual who's clearly done something wrong, when a great injustice has occurred and no one is held responsible, it's perfectly rational to get upset about that. Absolutely. I mean, I think of the the Breonna Taylor case where where Breonna Taylor dies in this this raid and the police officers may have done something wrong but for the most part the main problem was the police department was the fact that that raid occurred and occurred the way it did most of that yes. came down to the police as a whole being the problem not those individual officers because those individuals officers were behaving the way they had been trained they were following instructions they were doing what they had been told to do by the government, you know what I mean? And so then it becomes a broader right. concern, but it's harder to get justice against the police as a whole versus against an individual, you know what I mean? Regardless of what happens with this case and with Derek Chauvin, Derek Chauvin is not the main problem. Derek Chauvin is just one small symptom, really, of a greater problem, I mean, that we've been talking about since our very first episode, which is... Which is the abuse of power that naturally comes when, as a police officer, you are given such incredible power and 
incredible immunity. You know, it, it creates natural mm-hmm. abuses of power that we've seen over and over and over again that we forget about when we focus on individual officers and especially when we focus on racism as the primary cause of these incidents. Yes, I think we have a number of things that we've discussed coming together here. The focus on racism is making it very hard to see actual systemic problems in the police department. Exactly. In the way that they play out. There is the claim that police officers are killing black men at a rate that is disproportionate to the population is true. That it is disproportionate to the number of interactions they have with them and into crime is not true. And that's an important distinction. The claim that this is all about race and that this should be considered as a racial justice thing is terrifying because it would, it would suggest that Derek Chauvin is not on trial for being a police officer, but for being white. And that there has to be some kind of justice here because he killed someone who is black. Mm-hmm. And that the circumstances then begin to matter less and less as you focus more and more on the race issues and on these numbers that have nothing to do with the actual specific events of an individual. Again, it's this, we lose sight of justice and the individual circumstances and motivations that can help us find justice when we start to look at race in social groups. The people that are driven by that are going to have a predictable reaction if this does not come out with a murder charge, right? If if he is not convicted of some kind of murder, then clearly to them, this will be an injustice. This will be a travesty. And the, the riots that happened at George Floyd's death will likely resume. And that's, what's, that's the interesting thing in this to me. I haven't dug, I do not have the patience or the interest to follow the trial on an hourly basis, though you can find live streams of it out there and to, to listen to every witness testimony. But on the other side of that, the, the blindness, I think, that comes from focusing on the race here and the way that it pushes against justice and the kind of thinking you want to analyze the specifics of a case you also have, as you were saying, the police factor and the, the way the police are organized. Things like the, the way they do raids, the, thing, the way they treat drug situations and things, all of that suggests systemic problems that end up causing all kinds of harm that is unjust and unnecessary. This case will end up being ground zero for all kinds of future judgments and problems that do not see the things that we're talking about. Yeah, exactly. If if they come out and say say he's he's acquitted or or he just gets convicted of manslaughter, then I think that is an opportunity to be upset and to do something about it. And what should be done is to say, "Hey, the reason he was acquitted is because he was just doing his job." That means that his job is unjust. And if police officer's <laughs> right. job is such that it puts them in situations where they're killing people, by, by kneeling on their neck for nine minutes, then we need to get rid of that job or we need to change that job because that is a serious problem. And that needs to be the focus. You know, it needs to be the focus is, is how did this happen? How is this okay? And how can we change it so it doesn't happen in the future? And that needs to look at serious police reform. I was listening to one of the Black Lives founders who then later left it as it became more and more focused on race. You'd think, you'd think with that name that it was always about race. Uh, but she suggested that primarily it was about police brutality initially and about reforming the police and that then it began to take on this critical race makeup and this this focus on these societal injustices and norms and numbers that are disproportionate to your population she then eventually left it because it no longer was fighting the common battles that we all share the the things that unite us which is that you should not treat a, a human being unjustly regardless mm-hmm. of their skin color yeah we hope that whatever happens here as the details come forward and things, that the the jury acts properly. I hope that whatever they decide, they decide it because, as a jury ought to, because they didn't have any reasonable doubt that he was guilty of that. And that may mean that they risk giving him a lesser charge than he deserves. That may mean that perhaps he did something worse, but we're giving him the benefit of a doubt, because that's the way our justice system works. I think erring on the side of caution, as our system is set up to do, is the correct principle. We believe that it is worse for you to punish an innocent person than it is for you to underpunish a guilty person. Mm-hmm. And that at least you can stand with your hands clean. Right? At least you can say, I have done no wrong here because I wasn't sure and so I held back. 
And I don't think there's anything wrong with that position. And I think that should be something that should be respected, right? To say, look, I looked at it all. I could not say that I knew for sure that he had done this. Therefore, I didn't pin that that on him, mm-hmm. right? I, mm-hmm. I'm legitimately worried about what's going to happen to the jurors if they come away with a, a smaller conviction you know, and what's going to happen to the country. So another thing we wanted to talk about is uh, Joe Biden's infrastructure bill, which is, uh, I don't even want to talk about it. It's so boring. And so <laughs> this is not good, but it's not good in such a delayed way that it's hard to get upset about it, which is part of the beauty of this infrastructure bill. You know, a lot of people's initial reaction is great infrastructure. I've seen my local neighborhood roads. They could use the help. I'm sorry. This will not be helping with that. <laughs> not even slightly. Or, yeah. oh, good. They're going to uh, spend money on electric cars. They're finally going to create an electric grid like gas stations to compete with them so that our electric cars can be much more usable. And not so much. They are dumping money into electric car industry, but where the money is going is is not quite so simple. It's going many different places. <laughs> you were telling me, I, I mentioned that they're spending $174 billion on electric car charging stations. And I thought that was pretty cut and dry. Okay, that's a really particular interest. I don't think they should be spending the money that way. But I thought I knew where that was going. In this bill, Dan, they are spending $174 billion in the electric vehicle arena. But it's not $174 billion for electric chargers. It's not even $174 billion for incentives for electric chargers. Electric chargers are just part of it. They're also doing normal incentives for other areas of electric vehicles. And so it's not nearly so cut and dried as it as it sounds. Apparently, like us, they could see that Tesla's soon going to become unprofitable if they don't do something. <laughs> and you can look at the breakup of so many other aspects of it, and they're all like that. You know what I mean? It says things like 20 billion for road safety. We all love road safety. But where actually is that $20 billion going? You know, how exactly are they breaking it up? You know, we've got $80 billion for Amtrak and uh, freight rail services. So Amtrak's getting another large dump of money because Amtrak has rarely been Leaking profitable. Leaking money forever. Yeah, has been, has been hemorrhaging money and will continue to hemorrhage money. Um, you know, and there's, there's lots of specific things like, you know, $45 billion to to eliminate lead pipes and replace them with other pipes. Billions and billions of dollars to retrofit housing units to make them more environmentally friendly. You know, that's that's hundreds of billions is being spent on that. They're spending billions on on stuff for community colleges, which already receive money from from state. You know, they're spending um 400 billions on care for the elderly and disabled, which we're not opposed to, but I don't know what that has to do with infrastructure. Just right. I don't I don't understand, you know. Right. I read through this bill and I go, if you showed me this bill and the contents and you said, what kind of bill is this? I'd say, oh, it's clearly a stimulus. That's what this looks like to me. Looks like a stimulus bill. Yeah, because they're, they're just throwing money at all different areas, you know. Yeah, all different, different types areas. of work, different type of things you want to do. This this just looks like we're trying to stimulate the economy. You know, one category just says $25 billion to fund new projects. New projects for what? <laughs> well, we... Twenty-five billion is just pocket change, apparently, for the federal government. So well, we just, well the way they're throwing out these numbers, specify. it feels like that. But I'm over here thinking, like with the the electric charger grid, for 174 billion, you could build a national electric charger grid that was halfway decent and be done mm-hmm. with it. But that's not how they're using this money. None of these are going to something where you're like, okay, now that's done. I've heard somebody suggest it this way: that this is what it looks like when after the unions get somebody elected, and you then have to pay back all those unions. <laughs> this, this is a collection of those bills. But to be fair, that's what every spending bill looks like. Mm-hmm. And so I'm not sure that this, is, that this suggests any kind of unique corruption or anything like that. I think no, this is just ordinary all. corruption, which is why it seems so run-of-the-mill after talking about the Derek Chauvin case. This is, it's, just a, it's just another business day down at D.C., yeah, the only thing that changes is the size of the numbers. Yeah, I mean, this is not partisan bill. I mean, there are aspects of it that I'm sure conservatives will take offense at. But the general scope of it, yeah, it's something Trump could have proposed two years ago. Yes, and it would have passed. Republicans would have said, yeah, that's fine, if he had proposed it. If he had proposed it, yeah, exactly. Obviously, we think it's ridiculous. 
This is, this is a terrible way to spend money that we don't have. This is a terrible way to inflate because that's where all this money is coming from. None of this is coming from taxes. Now, there are included in this some tax raises. As it stands now, I believe they're looking to raise the corporate tax rate to 29%. That sounds right. Somewhere around there. That would pay for a portion of it over the course of the time this money is spent. I believe this bill was supposed to spend money over eight years, and then it would take another seven or eight years for that tax increase to pay for the whole thing. Some props to them for putting a tax increase in there. If you're going to spend money, it has to come from somewhere. The resources have to come from somewhere. Taxes represent that. And they didn't have to do that. They could have just printed it. <laughs> they could have just had the Federal Reserve write it off and they would have added it to the debt, right? Now, both of those have the same effect. Resources must move here that we're moving elsewhere. But it would have played out very differently. And it's a much more honest way to put a tax increase in there, even though the tax increase doesn't quite cover it. I'm sure we're not going to wait 16 years before the next bill that spends more money than we have. <laughs> right. So that's some, it's yes, something if, of an illusion to if say If this was the this... kind of bill that came about every 20 years, then that would be just fine. Instead of <laughs> right. a bill that comes out every three or four or two or three. Yes. As I said, this isn't going to check any boxes. You're not going to feel like, okay, we're done with anything after this bill is, after all this money is spent. In fact, you will, unless you happen to work in one of those specific groups that are getting a significant favor from the government. And there are a lot of those groups. You can cover quite a few with $2 trillion. You're not going to feel any difference from this. It's not going to make the roads better. It's not going to do any of these things that you think from the word infrastructure. This, like so many other bills, is hurting some people to help other people. And you may be in one of those in-groups, or you may not be, in which case it's just hurting you. So speaking of Biden's incredibly scary presidency, by the way, I use that term sarcastically because the conservatives are as much as possible trying to uh, garner fear. I was saying to you before this uh, podcast began that our, our probably most controversial view is that Biden is meh. Right? He's not the <laughs> devil and he's not some angel. Yeah, he's because you've got the meh. Democrats pushing that he's, that he's getting a lot. The conservatives are also the pushing- world. That he's getting a lot done. You know, both sides are arguing that he's getting a lot done. Some people are happy about it and some people are upset about it. But we're over here saying, eh, he's not doing that much. You know, as I said before with the infrastructure bill, it's not that unique. It's not that even partisan. Only small chunks of it have to do with environmental measures, which is what conservatives are so incredibly afraid about in regards to, to Biden and things like infrastructure. Which brings us to Joe Biden's executive actions on gun control. And the conservatives are going nuts over how how scary this is. Joe Biden has called for another assault weapons ban. He's called for more severe action. And then he's done some executive actions about gun control. And those two ideas combined sound pretty scary. But when you break it down, it's really not. First of all, his executive actions were not executive orders that changed the law. No, what he did is he said he said a couple of things. He said he wants he wants the executive branch to look into ghost guns and what we can do to regulate uh, firearms parts in order to regulate ghost guns. And what ghost guns are is basically where you have these parts that you can put together into, into firearms, and only a couple of those pieces are regulated like firearms are. And so you can buy those other parts that aren't regulated and then make the regulated part on your own, and now you have a firearm that has no registration, and no way to track it. That's what a ghost gun is. The other thing he wants them to look at is the classification of pistols that have braces. And I know what you're thinking. Wow, I didn't know he would be able to accomplish so much as to do those two things. <laughs> I must have misheard you, Brad. You said look into these things, right? He did not sign an executive order. From the way people are talking, this is what it sounds like. He did not sign an executive order that says from now on, Pistols that have braces are going to be classified as such and such instead of being classified as a pistol. He could have done that. He could have signed an executive order that said that. He could have signed an executive order that said from now on, firearms parts, even if they aren't the normal ones that are regulated, are now going to be regulated and are going to have serial numbers stamped on them. He could have done that. 
but he didn't. Instead, he called for them to be looked at. And then he called for those broader actions to be taken specifically by Congress. He said an assault weapons ban should be passed by Congress. He's made it clear he's not going to sign an executive order banning assault weapons. And so as someone who is definitely not a fan of gun control, me personally, it's just hard to freak out about such minor actions. Any gun control is something I'm not super excited about, but this isn't even any gun control. He hasn't actually done anything. He's just talked about it. At this point, we are just talking about it. Nothing has happened. Despite the word executive action. Despite the word executive action, and despite Joe Biden talking about the fact that this is one of his number one issues. You know, he said, if I could get one wish, you know, if I could get one thing done, it would be this. Time will tell us as years go on, but with the congressional makeup right now, I don't see any way that he could get an assault weapons ban through through the Senate. I mean, he would have to get 10 conservative senators, 10 Republican senators to pass an assault weapons ban. Yeah, to get it past the filibuster. Yeah, and I just don't think that would happen. I really don't. Right. This is one of those things where you listen to Democrats talk about this and they go, wow, look at what he's doing. He is changing the world. Everything, we're just riding the Biden train. And this is incredible. <laughs> and then, why? Because if Biden is not a good candidate, they lose the next election. And, and things go, you know, things can go bad for them very quickly. Yeah, what they need for Biden to win again in four years is voter turnout. And they get that by touting what he's accomplished. Yes. So they say that this is this is a glorious change that's going to have a significant impact. And then Republicans who need their voters to be angry and to be scared, so they get out to vote, tell you, yeah, this is the end of the world. This is this is changing everything. This is the first step of many and it's gonna do all this stuff. And this plays out on so many things that Biden has done that have been truly inconsequential. Truly inconsequential. <laughs> has there, and you know it's inconsequential because there was no legislation passed. If there is not legislation passed, then at worst, it's an executive order. And an executive order can be undone by the next executive as soon as they feel like it. This is one of those, this is the same thing we saw with Trump. Trump did a lot of things by executive order. Some of those things were good. Some of those things were bad. None of them mattered once Biden became president because Biden simply overturned all of them. And then he put in his own. Yeah, a huge chunk of, of Biden's first executive orders were to overturn a bunch of Trump's executive orders. And each one does more executive orders than the last because they have to get rid of all the other guys and then they do their own. And then the next person will get rid of all the other guys and then they'll do their own. And this will just keep going. And none of these changes are on near the scale that people think they are. None of these changes have near the impact. Now, they do have an impact for the time that they're in place, but it is minor, and it is not nearly on the scale that legislation can do. Even an executive order, which can do more and has the weight of law within the executive branch, has only a very narrow scope that it can play around in. As long as the legislature does nothing, which they're reliable for, other than you know handing out money occasionally, then nothing serious changes. Biden is a meh president looking at a meh infrastructure bill who just made some executive actions that are literally just one step above nothing. And I just want to say one more thing as we talk about this, is that even if he had passed executive orders about ghost guns and classification of pistols with braces, even if he had gone so far as to miraculously gain control of both houses for a day and pass an assault weapons ban, in terms of gun control, that wouldn't do very much. Now, as, as there are a lot of people who like to buy weapons that are classified as assault weapons, it would be very inconvenient. For the American gun consumer, it was very inconvenient when it happened for 10 years back in the 90s. It would be very inconvenient now. It would not stop them from purchasing guns. It would not stop them from purchasing guns that have incredible firepower, which is what the assault weapons ban is supposed to do, to stop. It would just mean they would have a bunch of restrictions on, on things they can do. Lots of those restrictions for the, the assault weapons ban back in the 90s were about parts of the gun that were, to use a common gun vernacular, 
tactical, <laughs> as in they looked very tactical and they looked very cool. But whether or not you have those things does not stop that gun from firing bullets. Mm -hmm. In terms of even just mass shootings, because there are so many gun-related violence that occurs every year that it has nothing to do with mass shootings. Mass shootings are just a small percentage. But even in an attempt to stopping mass shootings, an assault weapons ban would do almost nothing. And it would do almost nothing in regards to the many, many shootings that occur every year. It would do literally nothing for the the huge chunk of shootings that are handguns. It has nothing to do with rifles at all. Which is a good point. I I think it's important for Biden, for political reasons, to look like he's doing something with guns. I think it's important for the Democrats, for political reasons, to say this is a big deal. And I think it's important for Republicans, for political reasons, to say it's a big deal. It is none of those things. He's not doing anything. It is not a big deal. Now, Biden would love to pass things that would be a big deal. But as we noted before he got elected, that he's just not in a position to be able to pass any of those things. Yeah, if Biden could, maybe he would get rid of all the guns in the United States. But there isn't anywhere in the Overton window for that to happen anywhere in the next 20 years. There's just not, there's not the political power to make that happen right now. And yeah. so instead, he's going to settle for little things, probably not even an assault weapon ban, but even smaller things like pistol braces. If the only thing you can do to take care of gun control is to regulate pistol braces... That's how you know you're not accomplishing anything. <laughs> I'm sure Biden woke up that morning. He's like, what can we do to stop all of this, all of this gun crime? And he's like, I figured it out. It's pistol braces. <laughs> this is the problem. If we can fix this one thing, everything will fall into line. Right. And my, my favorite part about this is that for now, they're just looking into it. They're looking into pistol braces. But one day Biden <laughs> dreams of accomplishing his goal. <laughs> and and just and just reclassifying those pistol braces once and for all. Not even banning them, just reclassifying them. There is a third thing related to Biden's presidency that we wanted to discuss, and it's the border crisis. I think crisis is the right word. I've never liked that word because it has political connotation, right? People were like, is this a crisis or is this not? Well, it depends on if you like the president or not, generally. <laughs> that's That's usually what determines how people use that word. And this one, Dan... This story is just so – it's terrible. What's happening is terrible. Absolutely. But what's – It is. But there's, there's a funny element to this because this has been going on since before Biden's presidency. It's definitely gotten worse after Biden became president. In the last couple of months, it's definitely gotten worse. It's worse than it was a year ago under Trump. Those are the facts. Those are the, the reality of it is that you have more migrant children who have crossed the border and are being held for long periods of times in bad conditions in the United States right now than there were a year ago. Of course, you remember who built the cages, Joe. The arguments back and forth that we had last fall about this crisis, and of course, the Democrats were very upset at how Trump was handling it and, and said, you need to stop this. This is unjust. This is a crisis. This is unethical. And now that Biden is in charge, all of a sudden, it's under control, it's improving, it's getting better, and it's being handled. There's this complete 180 about face for a situation that has not gotten better, but it's just the political game that's played. And you can see it clearly here, because you can believe that if circumstances were reversed, the Republicans would do the exact same thing, which they have, because when Trump was in office, the conservatives were not at all concerned about the border crisis and these <laughs> migrant children. But now that a Democrat is in office, it's a crisis. And it's just, this is an, a travesty. They did want increased funding. I will give them that. The Republicans wanted the Democrats to move so that they could do like the border wall and things like that. But you're right that this kind of thing has played out before and Republicans were meh on it. That's apparently my new favorite word. I never <laughs> used it in podcasts. I've used it now like five or six times. Everything's meh today. For those of you who are a little older, means it's mediocre. But one thing, one thing else that I want to say about this is something that, because Democrats are admitting that there is an issue. I mean, I, I know CNN had an article talking about this crisis that is occurring, and CNN was listing the reasons why. And not once did CNN mention the fact that part of the reason 
at least a significant part of the reason why the numbers have increased is because Joe Biden has campaigned on a platform of amnesty. He's even mm-hmm. talked about potentially passing some kind of one-time amnesty for all illegal immigrants currently in the United States. And those words have power. And it encourages people who are currently in Mexico who were on the edge of whether or not they wanted to migrate to the United States illegally, it incentivizes them to migrate now in the hopes that they get that amnesty. Right. It's one of those things where you walk this line and then you walk this half edge. You know, Joe Biden talks the talk but hasn't actually done anything. So what's the net result? People are flooding the country and and getting arrested because he hasn't actually granted amnesty. It's not like he stopped the Border Patrol from arresting these illegal immigrants. No, they're continuing to do what they've been doing. He hasn't actually changed any policy. All he's done is encouraged people to migrate illegally, which has had a lot of negative ramifications in the meantime until he actually does something. Yeah, and it's a, it's a terrible place to be. We've talked about immigration. I think our policy take on it is entirely unique and is correct and sees all of the problems and incentives for what they are, as well as the way the market reacts and interacts with an increase in labor. We are convinced that immigration for work visas should be effortless, and Mm -hmm. anyone who wants to come and work should be able to come and work. That is a great boon to our country rather than a great sacrifice that we make out of compassion for other people. It actually would help us. But almost more importantly, is it would end what we're seeing now. And I became aware of some details about this that I was not aware of before. About how bad this illegal immigration is for the immigrants themselves. We discussed how drugs changing hands, not related to immigration, but how drugs changing hands in a black market situation tends to lead to violence and to other bad things. This is why gang wars and drug, uh, drug deal gone bad, all of these things are associated with violence because it's about an extremely valuable good on a black market. Well, here we have an extremely valuable good, and it's getting into America on a black market. And in these black market exchanges, there is no order. There is no way to appeal for justice. There is no way to organize it and to bring it into the light of day. And as such, the things that we expect to happen with black market events happen. And in this case, it's specifically the amount of rape that blew me away. In that female women and children were, according to an Amnesty International report, they estimated that about 60% of all women and children who are female are being raped at some point in this process. In the process of coming to the United States. And that's absolutely that's absolutely horrendous and something that's just going to affect more people as there's more illegal immigration coming into the United States. As the demand goes higher and you get more of these black market organizations who are moving people into the United States. And that doesn't even touch on on those who are who are led to believe they're being brought into the United States but end up getting pulled into things like sex trafficking, which does happen in this black market, because there's no accountability. You get loaded up into a truck to come into the United States, and where they bring you is entirely up to them. What do you know about them? How are you going to find them if they do something to you? What consequences can there be? 60% was from the early 2000s. It has gone up. The last one I saw was about 2014, and they estimated it had gone up to 80%. That's terrible. And at that point, you just plan on it. That's what one of the things that we're talking about. The people who make this journey plan on that. At some point, they're going to have to sell themselves or be taken advantage of as part of this deal. I hope that they don't know that when they go into it, in the sense that if they've accepted that that's just part of the cost, that in some ways seems even more tragic. If they've accepted that that's, that's worth the price and that that's something mm-hmm. that's going to happen to them. But, it's, but no matter how, there is no, no way that number can be even close to reality and have it be okay. This has got to be one of the most terrible areas in the world for that kind of crime. I bet it's better than that on some war fronts. 
right? Where you were in the most terrible places in the world, where there's literally a war waging around you, you might be safer Mm -hmm. than here crossing this border and, and going through this process of crossing the border. And it doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't have to be a black market thing. People could come and they could work and it would be good for everybody except perhaps the places they're leaving, who are losing people who are willing to come and work. Yeah, and the solution is so simple, and yet for some reason, neither party will embrace it, which is to open the borders, to allow people who want to come to the United States to work, to come here legally. You don't have to give them citizenship. You don't even have to give them the benefits of the of Social Security and all those other things. You could say, you just get here, we're going to give you a specific tax rate only for people who have work visas, which is already somewhat a thing. And they would know that coming into it, right? No questions asked, here's your work visa. I mean, you don't even have to do no questions asked. I mean, you could, you could filter out people who were, you could talk with the other governments about who, who exactly these people are if you wanted to. And doing something like amnesty for illegal immigrants is a lot like lessening the sentences for your common drug user. You know what I mean? It's good for those individuals who are going to benefit from it, but it's not solving the systemic problem. As long as drugs are being sold illegally in this black market, there will continue to be this violence associated with it. And as long as the actual immigration part is in this black market, you will continue to have all of that violence associated with it. And no amount of amnesty will ever change that except to increase it. Yes, and the the people doing these kind of things that are murdering people and stealing from them and taking advantage of the women and, and girls are just going to become more and more wealthy off this process. Yeah, you'll have more and more people doing that same thing, and it's just going to become... For sure, something needs to change, and and half measures are not going to cut it in terms of this of this border crisis. And nothing an executive order could do will, will fix it. It's outside of the scope of what executive orders are. An executive order that tried to seriously change this would be struck down by the courts because it's outside of the power of the presidency. And again, it's something that Biden hoped to change has not changed in a significant way. Which is why whether you like what Biden's trying to do or hate what Biden's trying to do, he's meh. Because he's not doing <laughs> a lot of any. He's not Because do- he's not doing a lot of either. He's the most controversial figure doing nothing that I'm aware of. So the last thing we wanted to talk about is uh, the Georgia voter suppression bill. Now, when I first heard about this voter suppression bill, I wanted to know why they decided to name their bill the voter suppression bill. It seemed like a a massive oversight on on the the bill writer's part to call it that. <laughs> it's not actually called that, but that's that's what the media calls it now. It's it's become so synonymous with the bill that I don't even know what the bill is called. <laughs> right, I don't either. I don't either. I call it the Voter Suppression Act. And if that's not good marketing, I don't know what is. Right. Somebody clearly won the marketing value over the name, which importantly drives a lot of politics. <laughs> Who gets to pick the name of the thing? And whoever wins that war often wins the battle. And branding has always been incredibly important. I mean, just last week we talked about the the power of words and the impact they have, not just on legislation, but on ideas. And this is definitely one of those, because there is a long history in the United States of voter suppression in the South. So having a Georgia voter suppression bill, it resonates with people in a very powerful way. Combine that with the growing rise of critical race theory, the BLM movement and all of this in the past year makes it a very easy bill to uh, to attack, you know, to use as a as a rallying cry for liberals nationwide, even as we're accomplishing all these amazing things with Joe Biden as president, <laughs> you know, the conservatives are actively trying to disenfranchise minorities, which is pretty good marketing. It is. And it helps encourage people to, like we said, in, you know, in the next election, make sure they turn out the vote to stop those, those no good Republicans from, from cutting them out. Yeah. So how would you summarize this bill, Brad? Give it to me without the propaganda. Without the propaganda, the bill is not nearly as crazy as it sounds. It's got several different provisions, and it's definitely a reactionary bill because of last year. They're concerned about the absentee ballots. And so they're trying to put things in place to make sure that there isn't voter fraud, which is relatively reasonable. The different provisions have more or less justification behind them. Mm -hmm. One of the aspects that's more controversial is requiring voter ID in order to gain an absentee ballot 
or at least use your uh, your government ID number, the number you have on your ID, in order to do your absentee ballot. And the debate on that issue is legitimate. The voter ID has been an issue that's been debated long and hard, and both sides have a legitimate argument. On the one side of the issue is the argument that if you can't have some kind of, of ID for the voters, how do you prevent any kind of voter fraud, especially with absentee ballots? And on the other side of the argument is there's a large chunk of the population, not a majority, but a large chunk who don't have access to government ID, and that tends to disenfranchise them. And I think it's a healthy debate that we should continue to have because there have been times when voter ID laws were put in place that were incredibly restrictive, that only allowed one or two types of government ID instead of allowing things as simple or as reasonable as, you know, university student IDs, even government IDs. So government employees couldn't use their government IDs to vote, things like that, that could allow people the opportunity to vote as many people as possible while still allowing for there to be some kind of voting security to make sure that the voting process is secure. Because if the voting process isn't secure, there is a legitimate argument made that you are disenfranchising everyone, at least a little bit, if there's voter fraud going on. Right. Look at countries where there's massive voter fraud. And it's a serious problem, and you can no longer trust those elections, and it actually disenfranchises the entire population. There is history of dictators who allowed voting, but would always ensure that they won through voting fraud, and that's obviously a problem as well. It's it's at least as big of a problem as disenfranchisement of a, of a population, because you're just disenfranchising the entire population. Yeah, you're just doing it secretly. And so as, as these bills are coming up, I absolutely agree there needs to be a discussion because some provisions, because this is not the only state that has them, some provisions can be too much, that can be intentionally put in place to try and disenfranchise a population, while many, many provisions are actually reasonable safeguards. And to throw them all out, to throw the, the, the baby out with the bathwater is a bad idea. To have no kind of safeguards at all is not a good idea either. Right. I've heard some interesting things about this. Uh, people discussing how this compares with other states. Because if you were saying this is a really, this is a restrictive bill, how does it compare with the bills in other states? I haven't actually sat down and compared them myself, so I don't know the answer to that. But I do know that states vary a ton. And Georgia... Absolutely. And if you were to put them all side by side, you would not say Georgia is the most restrictive place or even close. Even after the bill is passed, you know, assuming it is passed, they would not be the most restrictive, which is a good sign for the Georgia bill that in terms of this debate, it's not, it's not heinous to say the least. Yeah. Yeah. That it might be disingenuous to say that they're... To treat them as if they're some kind of extreme when they're not. Absolutely. And and like I said before, we, we fully support having this discussion. The important thing, though, is that we have the discussion. <laughs> if you dismiss any kind of a voter safeguard bill as a voter suppression bill, then pretty soon there is no discussion. You know what I mean? And it, and yes. it takes away that argument. Yeah. On the other side, conservatives need to be willing to look at it and say, yes, I, in my personal life, have always had a driver's license. And so requiring a driver's license as voter ID seems like a no-brainer, but being able to understand that people are in different circumstances, you have people who live in the city who don't have a driver's right, license, they never so they need have one. to go and pay for an ID that they didn't have before, which is not that different from a poll tax, which has its own negative history in trying to intentionally disenfranchise minorities and the poor. And so these are all things that need to be looked at, and there has to be a real a real discussion of it so that you can find ways to do it reasonably because it is something that varies state by state and the states do have power over that, which I think is good because as you can look at the different states, you can get good ideas for how to do it effectively. It's an interesting problem because it would require people from both sides talking to each other in good faith. Republicans who are not assuming that the goal is to let illegal people and fraudulent voters cast votes and Democrats who believed that the goal was not to disenfranchise people who should legitimately be casting a vote. To find those people and to have them have a conversation 
seems nigh impossible, <laughs> despite how simple it would be, right? Despite how, how easy, in terms of actual effort, what does this require from a human being? That you give someone the benefit of a doubt is not actually that hard. But when it comes to partisan politics, it sure is. No, and, and this is a great example of of how polarized the two sides are and the fact that when it comes to this bill in Georgia, both sides are imagining the absolute worst case scenario yeah. for the other side. Yeah, they're super suspicious. Yes. The Democrats believe the Republicans are trying to disenfranchise minorities because they'll vote for Democrats. Yes. And the Republicans believe that the Democrats are trying to leave the voter ID and things off the table in order to allow fraudulent votes to be cast. Like that's what both sides believe. They do. And, they if, do. and as long as both sides continue to dehumanize and just completely exaggerate the evil intentions of the other side, there's not going to be any kind of meaningful discourse. And this bill is just a great example of how if you can't have meaningful discourse, you're not going to be able to get things done, at least good things. <laughs> right. And it, it's such a funny thing because from the outside, it makes each party look like the thing they hate. It does look like, <laughs> like if the Republicans won't consider even a, a slightly relaxing anything, you know, then it does look like, well, wait, maybe they are trying to. And if the Democrats, as soon as someone says we'll we're going to push gonna... for any ounce of, we'll push for yes. any loosening of any restriction at any time. And come down on a, on a state that is somewhere in the middle of the pack and say, this is Jim Crow. Yeah. <laughs> you know? It's a, we do not go forward as long as that continues. And I do not see an end in sight. And on that happy note, we've come to the end of the episode. We hope we've inspired you all a little bit today with our recap of the current political situation. It's not pretty, but it's not terrible. <laughs> the bad news is it's going downhill. The good news is it's not going fast. At least in the current administration with the way things are, it, it's not going anywhere in particular quickly. Yeah, but it's definitely not getting better. And with that, thank you for listening. This has been episode 37 of Rethinking Politics. You can find us on all of the major podcasting apps. You can also reach us on social media, on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can find us on our website at rethinkingpolitics.podbean.com. And you can also reach out to us on our email at rethinkingpoliticspodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again and have a wonderful week.